Hello, and welcome to the Should I Go See It podcast, where every other Friday we take a deeper dive into the one-sentence reviews on shouldigoseeit.com. This week we'll be discussing Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. I'm your host, Bill George. With me, as always, AJ Rebecca and super producer Craig Stanton. Gentlemen, hello. Hello, hello. Light load tonight, Bill. One movie, but lots of news, AJ. So it should love, still be a full I love, docket. I love news. Um, okay. Well, boys, before we jump into apparently a, a huge news segment, um, Craig, you're going to kick us off. Oh. Super producer Craig Stanton, it seems like you watched a recent film that Bill had talked about. Yeah, this week I watched Asteroid City. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, for those that don't know, I'm a big Wes Anderson guy. Huge. Big. Massive. Embarrassingly big. He's got a, a Mr. Fox tattoo on his butt. <laughs> uh, I do not, but I wouldn't uh, be completely opposed. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I love Wes Anderson, saw Asteroid City. Bill tipped me off to the good value, which was the $20 iTunes rental. Which then turned quickly into the twenty five dollars I twenty five dollar buy. Okay, there you go. I was waiting for that. I didn't say it was good value. I'm just letting you know it is available. Should you want to see it without going to the, the value, the value is there. That is the yeah. fucking value relative to going going to the movies. It's uh, sure it's sure, a savings. Sure. You saved fifteen dollars if you and KP went. It would be twenty dollars a pop. So you saved fifteen dollars. Oh, good point. At good least, point. sure. Anyways. Okay, go for it. I'll make this brief because I know we got a lot to talk about. I didn't love it, and I'll tell you why I didn't love it. It was just too much going on, mm-hmm. too many layers of abstraction, yeah. too many levels yeah. of abstraction. And I've tried to synthesize this take down for the purposes of the podcast. Uh, I've been auditioning this take on a bunch of unwilling ears <laughs> throughout the week. <laughs> um, so here's here's what I have to say about Asteroid City and Wes Anderson generally. He likes narrators, right? Many of his good movies have narrators, and it's great. Alec Baldwin sure do. narrating the entire Tannenbaum's movie is like one of the best parts about yep. it. There's usually a narrator. Sometimes he gets weird with how that narrator comes to be, right? Like, some, like in the Alec Baldwin example, it's just a narrator. There's never any explanation. Other times, like in Grand Budapest Hotel, which is my like one of my favorite movies ever, You've got like current day Jude Law sitting across from current day Zero in the Grand Budapest and they're eating dinner and they're having a conversation about the history of the Grand Budapest. And that's how you basically watch the movie is via that conversation. Right. Fun fact, that is actually one level of abstraction down in that movie because the opening scene of that movie is a girl girl going to a graveyard opening a book called Grand Budapest Hotel. The grave is the grave of Jude Law's character. So then there's a time jump where you then meet Jude Law, right. who's alive. But anyways, that doesn't really matter. It's kind of superficial. And the, and the narration in that one works because you're, you're in the same place. It, like It's the same setting. And the whole time Bill was waiting for Jude Law to get kicked into the bathtub to come back one other <laughs> level to be in present day. <laughs> so anyways, in this movie, there's just too many layers of abstraction. You've got the Brian Cranston as like a TV host who is describing what is ultimately a made-for-TV play starring Edward Norton, who is playing the writer of Asteroid City, and then inside that world is a play, but it's actually a movie, which is Asteroid City. It's a mess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah mess. You, you could remove one of, the, one of the levels of the Russian nesting doll. Like, if they just told the story of Asteroid City... 
as a movie. Oh, that would be two levels, by the way. Sure. You could definitely afford to take away one, but if they were to just tell the story of Asteroid City, that would be taking away two. Sure. Which I'd be all, all, all for. Sure. And then uh, other than that, it's just a little, yeah, it was just, within the world of Asteroid City, it was like a fine Wes Anderson, like base hit, like fuck cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, didn't do it for me. Uh, understandable. Understandable. Yeah. Except for there's one scene where there's one little kid who sings this song randomly out of nowhere, which I thought was the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> that was a great sequence. Great um, sequence. So I'd recommend it for that 30 second sequence. Got it. You can any anybody get in touch with the Sigzy Instagram. I'll give you my Apple ID password so you can uh, get into my <laughs> iTunes movie history. Just to watch that clip. Bill, what did you watch? So as we prepare for Oppenheimer, uh, Christopher Nolan's latest film. Allegedly his masterpiece, according to the AV Club. Wow. I watched... Insert jerk-off motion. Okay, go. I watched uh, Tenet uh, for the first time since theaters. So I've been waiting a while to do a rewatch of this one. I turned the lights out, popcorn, the whole nine, movie night, rewatch Tenet, lock in. Uh, and I got to say... Subtitles? Subtitles or no? Nope. You had to. No. Psycho. Nope. Psycho. Did I miss a little? Did I miss a little dialogue? Yeah, maybe there's some there's some mixing <laughs> issues. I don't know. The whole but. premise of Tenet happens on a fucking on a on a on a schooner on a slip ship <laughs> in the middle of fucking nowhere, and it's two minutes, and they describe the entire movie, and if you don't have subtitles on, you miss the entire fucking thing. All right, and so, all the audio was recorded from behind Bane's mask. Yeah, <laughs> here's here was my take on the rewatch. Yeah, go watching the action sequences again, the practicality of the stunts, things like the airplane crashing into the building, like some of that stuff and the car chase, like the filmmaking, the craftsmanship is still incredible. And the scenes where there's like one character going forward in time and one character going back and they're having the, and they're in the same fight and then you revisit it from the other way. Like the filmmaking is, I actually appreciated it even more this time around because I kind of knew what to look for because it wasn't like the, oh my God, what is this? It was like a chance to dig in. Story-wise, still some issues. Length, some issues. I do like J John David Washington. Did I get that right? Yeah. Denzel's son. I like him a lot in the lead role. Um, but it's, it's, it's always going to be lesser compared to Nolan's true great work because it doesn't have an emotional core to it. Like His real good stuff, when you look at Interstellar or Inception, there's a great story with a great like uh, emotional element to it. And this has like none of that. This is purely just eye candy, which is really, really good. And the best eye candy there is. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it was good, but it's not my, it does not. It's bottom tier. Super it's bottom tier Nolan. It's uh, not a good. Well, bottom tier Nolan is still great. I mean, there's not a lot on the bottom tier for Nolan. There's not a lot. Every Nolan is pretty high tier. I'm, I'm rubbing my eyebrow. It's not a good movie. It's not a good movie. Oh, I would disagree. I would disagree. Uh, you watch something, AJ. You, this is a chance for you to come on this podcast and apologize or eat some crow because you texted me that you watched the new Wonka trailer, much maligned Wonka movie with Timothy Chalamet, your least favorite actor in Hollywood, and you said the movie looks pretty dope. If I was still a if I was still a smoker, I would have been outside smoking and shaking while I was like after I watched this trailer because I was so fucking floored by it. The new the new Wonka trailer is fire. I'm I am shocked. 
fucking fire. And I didn't want to like it. I didn't want to have it in my life. I didn't need it. I hate fucking origin stories. But I watched this and I was like, Oh, sold. Like if it's Christmas Day, like we're Bill, like happy birthday, buddy. We're we're going that night and we're gonna see it. So let me get this straight. Let me get this straight. This is a prequel. Yep. The origin story of Willie Willie F. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to think of how many things that you typically hate are incorporated into this movie all at once. List them. Prequel, unnecessary sequel prequel. Hate them. Origin story. Of a character that really needs none. Don't care. Chalamet. Fucking idiot. With his 26 size waist. Loser. Uh, And you're in. Oh, I am. He's sold. He's sold hard. I am so far in, I don't know how to get out. Wow. That's how I'm in. So I have not watched the trailer because I go in fresh. But I, on the face of it. You're going to make an exception? You might have to. I did not. I might have to do like a clockwork orange thing, like go into your house <laughs> Hold and my eyes open. pry your eyes open. <laughs> oh, God. I still, the thing about Willy Wonka, and this is what I felt about fucking the prequels for Star Wars too, about Darth Vader. The thing that makes Willy Wonka so uh, interesting as a character is the mystery and is the, the lack of knowledge around his true origin. Like that's, that's, when you see him in the original movie, like that's the beauty of it is that mystery. So the idea that we would tell an origin is like, why, what are we doing here? But the way they set it up is like this industrial revolution, steampunk London and a guy who needs to be able to like show his love for chocolate and candy making in a market that is controlled by basically like the big three, big pharma of chocolate. And I was like, the fuck? Big confection. Okay, that's big interesting. Sweet. That's big, interesting. Yeah. Big, <laughs> <laughs> big confection. Yeah, interesting. Okay. So listen, I will eat crow. I will, I, you know how much I d- disdain Timothy Chal- Chalamet, but like, I think this might be the role where he's no longer the brooding angsty teen and is doing something that finally gets him out of that typecast and like he's he's gonna do something with this but you still gotta see dune part two in november so you're gonna have a little chalamet double header november december oh that's the worst holiday season (laughs) of all time yeah i mean dune i know what i'm getting into like it's gonna be broody teeny it's gonna be great is what it's gonna be can't wait for dune Eh, eh. but like yeah wonka trailer okay rock hard but what's in the actual news, uh, AJ? Oh, we got... This might be the biggest news in Hollywood in 70 years, 50 years. Yeah, it's big. 60 years. The Screen Actors Guild has officially joined the Writers Guild and, on, and are on strike against the AMPTP, beginning the first dual strike since 1960. Bill? What's the latest, and what effect is this already having, starting to have on Hollywood? So this started when SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, came to the table to negotiate their new collective bargaining agreement. Fran Drescher, president of SAG, said that... We'll get to that. ...said that she came to the table in good faith, and I, I believe them in the sense that you know, the, the DGA, the Directors Guild, got what they wanted. So I think the SAG thought maybe we will too. So they came to the, the table in good faith. But Fran... She's the nanny. But Fran Drescher has said they are so far apart from the studio on so many things that strike was the only option. 
And as we talked about in our last episode, they already had an early strike authorization from their membership. So they went and they struck. Uh, and then later, they have since posted sort of a list of their demands and how the studio has responded to those demands. Um, the list is really long. We're not going to get into everything because there's a lot of nitty gritty like meal breaks and requirements for, for hours and things like that. But there are three kind of big ticket items that are going to be the real decision making on whether they strike a deal or not. So I figure we could kind of talk about those three so that the folks at home uh, that haven't read all these articles about it have an idea of like what are they upset about and what is going on. Uh, Bill, yes. I am A, so fucking ready. And B, I think a, a bit of context we need to put into this is when you think of the SAG and actors, we automatically think of Brad Pitt, the Emily Blunts, the Matt Damons, right. the Brad Pitts, right? They have agents, they have agreements with studios that allow them to do things in their contract that are within the confines of the normal kind of union things, but they get leeway. There are still mm -hmm. DJs, dancers, background singers, background actors and actresses that all fall within this bubble that this really affects their life and their livelihood. So as we talk about you know, this thing, it's really important to kind of think about all of the players that are involved, not just your A-list, S-tier celebrities. Yeah, this is not George Clooney saying that he needs more. This is, this is for the thousands of actors at large that you see in everything you watch. Like most things with most unions most of the time, it is easy to depict them or allow yourself to believe when they're being depicted in this particular way by whatever media is trying to say a certain thing about unions they'll they'll point to the teacher that makes this much many hundreds of thousands of dollars they'll point to the uh, you know dpw guy or in this case or, or when in sports they'll talk about tom brady and drew Brees, and it's like well the average nfl salary is like 100 grand and the average nfl career span is like three years so like yes drew Brees does make 30 million dollars a year but like that's not what it is so yes similar to all those situations this is not about George Clooney or uh, Ben Affleck. A, a great, a great kind of thing that I I read online to kind of sum some of this up is like, let's say it's a twelve hour shoot day, right? You have to be on set for twelve hours. Your big actors and your actresses, right, will get like portal to portal in their contract, which means their day, their twelve hour union day, starts the time that they leave their door to the to the moment they arrive on set. So if you're in Calabasas in a mansion and you got to drive to a Warner Brothers lot to shoot, that hour and a half and two hours in traffic there and two hours in traffic back are, are in your running total. So now you only have to be on set for technically eight hours. Then you factor in makeup and hair. You might only have to have a five, four-hour shoot day before your kind of day's wrapped up. You're back in your, your trailer. You're getting ready to go. You get your black car and you go back to your house. But everyone else doesn't get that same treatment. So, Bill, what are our top three that we're going to fucking crush the man with? So the first one, we'll go basic first. Uh, increase to salary minimums. Standard stuff. Anytime they do a contract, they're looking to increase their rates. Uh, they want to increase it year over year a certain percent for the duration of this particular bargaining agreement. And they want those increases to also be reflective of and help offset inflation. Um, so that's bare bones, uh, just increase of the, what the minimum rate is for a SAG actor getting a job. 
there's not much so, to discuss there. Not much to discuss okay. there. But that obviously is is a big point of contention. Then we have revenue sharing. This is a big one. So streaming shows, as we've talked about when the writers went on strike, streaming shows don't generate residuals, which used to be the major way that studios would profit share with performers. So without that, SAG is saying that they want 2% of revenue from streaming shows to be divvied up amongst performers. So 2% of any given show should go towards the performers in whatever capacity, which sounds fine on the face of it, doesn't sound like much. The problem is the streamers don't know exactly how much money is derived from any one particular piece of content because it's all a subscription model. So the whole issue right now is that they don't have a way to say this one show generated X amount of revenue because who knows? So what SAG wants to do or wants the streamers to do... Can I just say something about that real quick? Just on the whole, like, how could you possibly... I mean, they know how many subscribers they have. They know how often any piece of media is watched, surely. Yes. These are smart people. I do not for a minute believe that they just couldn't possibly figure out how much money Stranger Things generates well, because everybody pays their five ninety nine a month or whatever. Or twelve ninety nine, well five ninety nine, what is this, two thousand nine? Um so I but this this particular uh pro union podcast producer does not buy the whole like we can't figure it out argument. Well what's so it's interesting you say that. So there are a number of companies now popping up in Hollywood, analytic companies that are trying to make their bones saying, we as a third party can figure out how much each thing is makes. And that's from the outside. That's without the privileged information of, uh, you know, being within the walls. So SAG wants the streamers to invite in a third party data analytic company to figure out a consistent measurement across all the streamers. And then that will help them figure out how much money is each show generating, and then 2% of that, can we divvy that up amongst the performers? So that's what they want. And obviously, the, the studios don't want to have anybody look at those analytics, or they don't want to share, or they don't want to share profits, whatever the case may be. So that revenue sharing is the biggest one because this also crosses over with the WGA quite a bit. Yeah, I, I kind of looked into the residual things because I, I find data in like the, the kind of numbers behind residuals fascinating and when we talk about residuals residuals are anything from replayed on network television to dvd sales to whatever so you think of someone like uh jim parsons who played uh sheldon on the big bang theory for 12 years the amount of money that man must get every month in residual checks from uh, from from different uh, networks streaming or replaying episodes of his television show where he was a star must be astronomical. The problem, though, as Fran the nanny said when she was kind of going to the bargaining table, is that that model no longer exists, right? There are like 77 million active cable subscribers in America right now. There's like 250 active Netflix subscribers right now. So like the 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 difference between people who use streaming service versus your standard cable where you could air something and get residuals has completely changed. So if the way that we consume data and media has completely altered, why are we not rearranging or figuring out a way where everyone can get a cut of, you know, what these actors and actresses do. It's fucking crazy. 
And now, like, the only way that some people are getting money, it's it's kind of similar to, like, the NCAA, like, name, image, and likeness, is that, you know, there's no residuals on Stranger Things, so all of these, you know, kids and actors get their kind of extra money, so to speak, by licensing their likeness for toys, board games, video games, you know, app video games and they have to do this kind of side deal to to license out who they are and what they look like in that character to make extra money where before it it wasn't like that you would just stream something or you know everybody loves raymond would be on tbs every night from 10 to 11:30 and ray romano would get a check because you know his shit would be replayed it just it doesn't it's not that like that anymore it's crazy yeah yep and then it gets even crazier when you get into the next piece, which is AI. So actors want compensation for their likeness to be used and for them to be able to consent to that use, which the studios, on the face of it, say they, they're fine with that. But from what it sounds like, their studios are also leaving a lot of vague language in the, the, the agreement. So, for instance, if the actor consents to them, to their likeness, for Netflix to be able to de-age it, say, like do scans of the face and then de-age it for a movie or whatever. What if the studio then uses that same data to create like a new performance or adjust a scene in a way that they didn't perform it? Like, do they have to consent to that? Do they now have the likeness in perpetuity? This goes to my point at the top um, of the hour. Let's not let's not think of the George Clooney's and the Matt Damon's of the world. Think about all of your background and and, um, you know, lesser known actors and actresses through this AI kind of clause or how they want to do it. Studios could scan all of the people that they sign on for a project. And then for future work, if they're like, hey, I need a middle aged black woman who has short gray hair to be an extra in the background. They now have a composite list and scans of anyone who matches that description they superimpose a likeness to it, and now that person will get paid some sort of residual, hopefully, if they use it, ideally. If not, it might be a flat rate thing, but then you're basically cannibalizing that person's livelihood for just a uh, Unreal Engine library of, of sprites and textures that can be thrown on a background person, and that's it. Yeah, and that's already what has happened at least once. There's already like a horror story basically of a bunch of background actors that went in, shot a bunch of stuff, got scanned afterwards. They got paid up front for it, only to find out later that they didn't realize that they were signing on for that scan to be used in perpetuity. So then if, if the studios wanted to create a, you know, if they need to adjust the, sh- the, the idea of the scanning is, oh, once we started to put in the VFX, we needed to adjust the shot, so now we have a scan. We can kind of change where the background actors are without reshooting, which seems fine. But once you sign off for them to have that forever, then, yeah, they could do that same thing for any future. Whatever movie. they want. This is the Jonah's Awful scenario. Similar. Yes, Jonah's Awful. Yep. Um, Black Mirror episode. So those are the three big ones. Revenue sharing, salary minimums, and AI. Um, so those are still being worked out uh, or attempting to be worked out, but they are on the picket lines. The studios, meanwhile, have started to adapt their fall schedules um, to start to rely, obviously, more on reality TV, as well as a couple couple studios doing some interesting things uh, to fill their slate because they won't have shows. Uh, ABC, for instance, is taking their Disney Plus 
uh, Marvel show, Ms. Marvel, and they're going to air it in primetime as it leads up to the Marvel's movie. So that's kind of an interesting idea. Um, so they're rearranging those schedules. And then on top of that, productions now, with the writers done and now the actors out, productions have shut down. And there are some big ones. So here's a list of the projects that are currently on pause during the strike. Deadpool 3, Gladiator 2, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 2, Venom 3, Wicked, which was apparently just about to wrap up, Avatar 3, and Venom 3 which all of those are huge money makers. So I don't know if the studios are going to come to heel faster because of these production stops more than anything else, but we will see. Can we talk about, I mean, the thing that floored me the most, were you not rattled when you learned that Fran Drescher was the president of the fucking Screen Actors Guild? I don't, I don't know why you're not as just floored as I am. I mean, I don't know. It's going to be somebody. I I wasn't that rattled. I was more like, oh, that's neat. Neat. The nanny. The nanny's neat. Yeah, I mean, she's she's a working actress her entire life. I get it. I know, but like, I just didn't, I just didn't expect it. I didn't expect it. When's the last time you saw Fran Drescher in anything? Speaking of residuals, I mean, goddamn Nick at night, she must be <laughs> rolling in, in millions a month on residuals for friggin' nanny reruns. And... Not only did that just floor my face off, but Sean Astin, who was Rudy, who played fucking Frodo's friend Sam in the in the in the in the Lord of the Rings, was was one of the key bargaining people that went to the table to represent SAG in the in the bargaining agreement. Yeah, it was him and uh, Groot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm uh, mad that you're not as so we- floored as I am. It's fine. I'm over. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That one didn't. That one didn't. Didn't do it for me. Um, so, Screen Actors Writers Guild all on strike, and uh, we'll have more on this story as it develops. I am sure. Well, good news. They announced a new season of The Bachelor, where the guy is in his golden years, and he's 71 years old, which will be in this fall. So, yeah, crazy. Oh, wow, that's actually fucking hilarious. Widower, 71 years old. Can only the only people on the show, the only women that have to be like sixty five or older to to kind of be on the uh, thing. okay. All right, I mean, wild, insane. Never Why seen the a season. Not? Feels like that. Feels like that's going to change soon, Bill. Just a hunch. Yeah. Uh, AJ, we have some other news. You ready to get into it? Yeah, I'm ready. All right, AJ. In news that you and Hannah, I'm sure, are going to enjoy. Okay. The Hallmark Channel <laughs> is starting their own Christmas cruise. The Hallmark Channel Christmas Cruise, setting sail <laughs> November 2024, will allow the network's many devoted fans to experience the magical world of its beloved holiday movies in real life. Uh, this is in your wheelhouse, Mr. Christmas Train. Should I go sail it? Po- is, is the ship in the style of an Amtrak uh, coach car? <laughs> I don't know. Bill, part of, me, part of me really wants to just get on there to see like how many... like horny cat women who knit are on that are on that cruise it's probably the weirdest cross-section of civilization you have ever seen you don't think it'd be couples mostly ever seen oh no 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 the couple i don't know (laughs) what are they gonna have like sugar sugar cookie decorating and fucking 
Like, what are you going to do on that? I'm asking you. I've never seen a Hallmark Christmas movie. You tell me what they're going to do on the cruise. I, I sh- it, it's like <laughs> sexual tension, sugar cookies, like women who own a, uh, a Christmas tree farm meet like a large, uh, like, agricultural developer and fall in love or a woman who owns an inn but then meets a guy who's like uh, a hotel like a large ho- yeah. hotel empire yeah it's basically like really bad versions of you got mail just for from october to to january i can't even imagine should we just go should we go and do like a docu like a docu series on it report on it i mean I wanted to go on the Kevin Smith one with Craig, and you said hard no. So oh, I, I, I guarantee you this would be a million times more interesting than the Clerks cruise. The, the, the Hallmark cruise crowd is just a mystery to me. Who, who are those people? What makes them tick? I don't know. <laughs> the the neck beards the neck beards on the clerks cruise I I think I know what I'm getting into there I'm not excited about it but I think I know what's 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 coming my way they love knitting they love their cats uh, fair yeah fair. you know what you're getting into but you think it's singles only you think that's an implicit implicit part of the marketing is that it's a singles cruise no I don't think it's implicit part of the marketing I just think it's a it's a large portion is going to be women there by themselves. In some capacity. We'll see. We'll have to get the report uh, come November. All right, Bill. And last but not least, um, this year's Emmy nominations, the 75th Primetime Emmy Awards, will be hosted on Monday, September 18th. What's your early take on the field? Who you got? Yeah. Yeah. So let me pull it up because there is a lot. Uh, The Emmy nods came out. Obviously, most of the news right now in Hollywood is all about the strike. So this kind of just got thrown out there. Um, but it is a murderer's row of shows from last year. So outstanding drama series, just to run through this real quick, Andor, which I loved, Better Call Saul, haven't seen it, but it's the last season, my understanding of Better Call Saul, so they're going to get some like retroactive hurrah awards. The Crown, fine, it's always there. House of the Dragon, fantastic. Last of Us, fantastic. Succession, Fantastic final season. White Lotus season two, also great. Yellow Jackets, haven't seen it, but I hear great things. So just a real strong field for outstanding drama. And then for outstanding comedy, Abbott Elementary, which everybody loves. Barry, which we love. The Bear season one, mind you, this is season one for The Bear. Yep. uh, Because it happens to come out around nomination time, so it's always a little bit behind. Perfection. Jury Duty, which, again, everyone loves. Marvelous Ms. Maisel. This will be the last season of that, I believe. Uh, Only Murders in the Building, Ted Lasso, and Wednesday. So both of those categories are just stacked. And then you get into the actors, and it's like multiple actors from from some of these shows, including Succession, people fighting amongst each other. Uh, And it's just going to be a really, really competitive Emmys. I'm really like, like, this is... I don't usually get up for award shows outside of the Oscars. I usually kind of skip everything but the Oscars. But this, I I could get interested in. Are we uh Are we gonna have to bring in Melissa again for um? I think we might have to when we get closer. We gotta get the take. Yeah. Yeah. When they announced the three of us were kind of going back and forth, and I I to be honest with you, a lot of these it's it's a coin flip. Like I have honestly no yeah. idea. Uh, I don't even know what the Vegas odds are for any of these right now, but I assume it's 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 pretty tight. And like to your point, for Succession, for example, I mean 
the entire cast is in some of these categories for like best actor and best supporting actor. And it's like, what, what happens? So, I mean, HBO is definitely, um, getting a strong return on their investment. We all are a fan of the bear. Um, hopefully that makes some waves. Um, but yeah, it's come September. I have no idea. And like you said, normally we don't tune into this, but this might be must watch TV to kind of, uh, see who takes on the Emmy. Yeah. Exciting stuff. All right, Bill, this week we have one and only one movie we'll be talking about. Uh, part one, if you will. <laughs> uh, we'll be talking about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One. According to IMDb.com, Ethan Hunt and his IMF team must track down a dangerous weapon before it falls into the wrong hands. I feel like you could use that same synopsis for most Mission Impossible movies. But Bill, <laughs> should I go see it? Yes, absolutely. I've now seen it twice, matter of fact. You saw it twice? Uh, yeah. Uh, this is my favorite franchise in film history. I think it is the best franchise in film history, and it continues to be so. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, it is a- Wonka is hot on its heels. <laughs> uh, it is a part one, as you indicated. So the story is not concluded, but I will say they did a nice job ending it at sort of an act break as opposed to like a cliffhanger. Okay. Um, so to speak. So there is a certain amount of, of closure to what we saw in this movie, but it, there's still plenty of story to be had. Uh, but I thought they, they broke it up pretty well. Um, and they take a lot of time to do so because it's two hours and 43 minutes. Uh, Jesus Christ. But it's, it's fantastic. Uh, the, the, so you mentioned how the, the, the synopsis of them trying to prevent something from falling into the wrong hands is basically every movie. Yeah. And that is true. There's a MacGuffin that they have to chase in every movie. Usually it's nuclear weapons. Uh, in this case, it is uh, actually AI, uh, a bad AI that has become sentient that they need to stop, which, Ugh. of course. But what's interesting and what this adds a neat twist to the series is because the AI is so invasive and can jump to different systems, whatever, they can't rely on their technology because it could be manipulated by the AI. And partially that's their whole thing is they use technology and gadgets to solve stuff. So if all of a sudden they can't rely on their comms or they can't rely on their tech, it changes the complexion of the movie a little bit sure. and adds a nice twist. So it's not as much of a rinse and repeat. Okay. Um, so I thought that was a neat... A neat thing. I'm not going to go super in-depth in the story, but I thought that was a neat idea. Um, there are some nice callbacks and references to the first movie, including the bringing back of a character, Kittredge, which I was really excited about because I love that first movie, and he, that's the only movie he's in. So they bring Kittredge back, which is cool. Uh, and they add some new faces to the cast, namely uh, Haley Atwell, who is fantastic, fits right in, instant chemistry with Tom Cruise. Love that. She's a great addition. Um, but obviously the main draw for these movies is the action and the stunts, and the movie does not disappoint. I think most of these are unfortunately spoiled in trailers. So, But even so, you got to go see it on a big screen to sort of believe it. Like my heart, I don't watch trailers, so I didn't see any of it, but my heart was racing. It's like a movie you get lost in, you forget that the rest of the world exists. You're just, it's just true escapism. You're just in the movie. Uh, uh, so yeah, it's outstanding. Let's talk about numbers, two numbers to be exact. Uh, 61. Age of Tom Cruise? The 
the age of Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is 61 years old. Still got it. And he said he wants to be doing these movies until he's like 80 or 90. Bill, can he still do that? And B, uh, do you think his age shows at any point during this film? Uh, no, I don't think you see it on screen. Uh, I didn't. I didn't notice anything about his his age. Nothing. Nothing. I didn't bump on anything there. Um, I mean, I had recently gone back and rewatched some of the older ones, and so obviously when you side by side, yeah. But it didn't change anything about the movie itself. So no, I don't see that as an issue. And I could see him still doing it. Just depends on the on the stunt coordination and what they choose to do. But he's still up to the task. Love that. Uh, next number is two ninety one. That's millions of dollars it costs to produce this film. So, uh, <laughs> COVID, start, stop, rinse and repeat. It kind of got fucked up over the last few years because of the COVID nineteen crisis. Two hundred ninety one million dollars. Bill, you think they're going to see that money back? Do you think they're going to get that, that oh, yeah. two ninety one back? I believe I. I'd have to check. Get it back from Bill alone. Yeah, I'd have to <laughs> check the numbers, but I think at least early on it was on pace to have a better opening than any other Mission Impossible in history. So I oh, do good. think there's plenty. I think the marketing, while annoying to me because of how much it gives away and how, how much of a marketing blitz there was, seems to be working because, unfortunately, most people in America won't go see a movie unless they know exactly what's going to happen in it. Uh, and it's working because people are seeing it. Uh, so, yeah. I, I also I had heard that budget number, but I also had heard disputes about whether that was Dead Reckoning total or whether that was just part one. Because, like I said, they are shooting part two now. Well, not anymore. It's it's paused because of the strike. But if it's two ninety one across both movies, so to speak, that makes sense. If it's two ninety one just for part one, then yeah, that's a pretty hefty price tag. But the money's on the screen. Like you see it in these action scenes. Yeah, two ninety is what I have for just part one. Uh, right wow. now, it's gross worldwide at two fifty nine, and gross U.S. and Canada at ninety one. Opening weekend, U.S. and Canada at fifty four. So yeah, they'll probably make it. They'll, they'll get there, no problem. And, like, and yeah, and uh, money's not an issue. Tom Cruise will bankroll these himself if he has to. Like, it's oh, that's pocket change. God. Uh, one last thing about Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible. He is known for um, doing his own stunts. Does he top himself yep. in this film? Like, is his feet is his feet level just so fucking hard? And he's just like, there's a couple. There's a couple big ones now. My personal favorite, like singular stunt, is probably still holding on to the side of the plane when it takes off in Rogue Nation. But there's some stuff in here that is pretty great, pretty great. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously the motorcycle jump, which is like the one that is everywhere, is astounding. And then watching the behind the scenes of that, which I usually don't, but in this case I did, made it even better. Um, so yeah, he's, he, it's, it's unreal that he does it all himself. How much of the doing his own stunts thing do you think is, uh, compensating for the fact that he can't dunk a basketball? I mean, he can't dunk a, uh, on a child's little tykes hoop, (laughs) let alone a fucking, he's not the tallest actor in the world. No, he's not. It's great though. It's great. I will say, uh, you know, it's not a perfect movie. I will admit the first 20 minutes are a little clunky. Like it takes a little bit of setup with the explaining and re-explaining the AI. So it takes a little time to get moving. But once it starts going, it's it's pretty great. If you had to put a gun in my head, I think I still like Fallout more. But that also oh. could be familiarity because I've seen Fallout a bunch of times. Um, and it's hard to judge this one because the story is not quite over. So, but, uh, but yeah, like I said, I saw it twice. I was enthralled both times. Love that. 
Uh, speaking of Fallout, Hannah and I rewatched it last night. Ugh. So good. It's just so... All of them are so good. I know. It's the best franchise there is. It's a good franchise. It's a great franchise. Best franchise? I don't know. All right, Bill. Uh, let's wrap this bad boy up. Um, wh- well, AJ, before we before we switch over to TV, while we're on Mission Impossible, yeah, friend of the show, uh, Greg Kelly wrote in. Okay. He says, I wanted to run a question by you, and maybe you could discuss it with AJ on the podcast. Sure, Greg. I'm now quoting Greg. I am woefully behind on both the Mission Impossible and 007 Daniel Craig movies. Mm. For each of the series, I've only seen maybe the first two. Sure. I'd like to start catching up on one or both series in the future. How do you rank the movies in each series, and how do you recommend I watch them? You, can I, I'll, I'll sum this up right now for you, Greg. You two go. Two Gs you or go. one? One on either side. Two Gs. Uh, Greg oh, with two Gs. <laughs> well, technically... Technically, three Gs when you, <laughs> three, when you count the first one. Yeah. Greg with three Gs. Yeah. Uh, great question. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, both the 007 and the Mission Impossible series kind of have a linear thing where they have callbacks for every single movie. And for you to kind of get it and the relationships and the tension, you, you kind of got to watch them in order. Greg with three Gs. Uh, Sorry. I'm on the same boat. I would say you have to watch them all. And... I think if I were to rank them for Bond, I can't rank Mission Impossible. I love them all too much, and it depends on my mood. But for I can definitely rank the Bond movies, which is Casino Royale number one, Skyfall number two, Skyfall number two, Quantum and Spectre tied for after that, and then no, no time. Spectre three, Quantum, Spectre three, Quantum, Quantum four, Quantum No Time to Die, four. Is, No Time to Die is last. I would actually put uh, No Time to Die before um, Quantum of Solace. Really? I mean, that movie is. Quantum's not that bad. Quantum, Quantum gets a bad rap. The reason why Quantum was so bad, there was no writers on set, so they had to go to Daniel Craig to basically do his own fucking rewrites because they had no writers on set because it was the last time they struck. struck. Quantum right? gets struck. a bad rap. I don't think it's that okay. bad. The point is... Quantum is a pile of shit. Okay, but... You, the point is, every other Bond movie's great, but you gotta watch all of them regardless. Okay. And the Mission Impossible, I would definitely recommend you watch all of them. The, the through line of the story really starts from three onward, where they really have like multiple characters call back and, and become important. Yep. Like there's a lot of reuse of characters between three, four, five, and six, but not and seven, but not even necessarily every movie. One will be in three and then come back in five. Like, so three, four, five, six, seven, you gotta watch in order. One and two, I still think are absolutely worth watching, especially one, because it sets the tone. Two is a bit of an offshoot, but I enjoy it. And then three onward, they just get better and better. Wholeheartedly agree with you, Bill. So watch them all, for sure. Watch them all. Uh, Don't skip any. Good news is if you have Paramount+, Plus, all Mission Impossible movies are streaming right now, one through six on, on Paramount+. Oh, Plus. are they? Really? Yeah. I think all the Bond movies are on HBO Max, but I could be wrong on that. I don't know if they took them away, but I believe there was a time when they were on HBO Max. Love that. Or Max, excuse me. Max, no HBO. Uh, boys, what are we watching? I got nothing. It's fucking Dude, dr- nothing. It's dr- drier than Just a- actually nothing. Yeah. It's bleak. It's bleak right now. AJ, I recently read a book with my eyeballs. Oh, you didn't do an audiobook? You actually opened it like a tome? Not even an audiobook. I actually read a book <laughs> made out of a tree. And it was <laughs> it was a great book. But that's what I'm doing because there's no television yeah, there's, to watch. It's really bad uh, right now. It's awful. Now, the old tree book. <laughs> today, 
the only, I, luckily, thank God, there's an oasis. Starting today, the justified, uh, long-awaited type of like, uh, what, do you, uh, what are they called? Um, there's a phrase for this. Legacy sequel. Uh, justified, one of my favorite shows of all time, which ended, I don't know, 10 years ago. They're doing a, a miniseries, legacy sequel, where are the characters 10 years from, from the end of the show type of thing called City Primeval. That's now available on Hulu, so I might actually watch the first episode tonight after we record this. Okay. So hopefully I'll have a show to watch, bad. but otherwise it's yep. been... It's really bad. Craig? Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's Red Sox baseball and YouTube for me, all the way down. Just real yeah. bleak. Real bleak. Can I, can I tell you what my new... So I think I, I, I talked about this on the pod a few months ago, but one of Hannah and I's guilty pleasures during COVID is we started watching Competitive Eaters. Right on YouTube. Ugh. Yep, I recall that. Yeah. Yes, yuck, yuck. Um, that one of yuck my for me. newest like sensory, like high functioning autism things that I watch at night is I watch um, Asian bakers bake things at night, like like cafes and bakeries in in South Korea and China. They'll like. Is it just like a live cam? Yeah, what are we talking here? Any production value? No, no. There's like, oh, like... Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, I mean, they're f- fucking very well done, but it's like, oh, like, here's a donut shop in fucking Shanghai, and they're going to make donuts from in 2 real time to when they open. <laughs> and I just sit there, and I fucking put a zin in, fucking just fucking zooted, and I just stare at the TV, and I wow. just doze off. Is that weird? Well, I it's mean, bleak. you do you. I'll tell you, it's bleak. Hey, whatever brings you joy, AJ. I mean, AJ, uh, B- BG read a book. True. <laughs> read a book. True. From a tree with his very own eyeballs. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. Did sure did. Uh, I don't even want to ask this question because I know what you're going to be watching. Barbenheimer. Um, uh, as of this recording, I'll be seeing Oppenheimer tomorrow. As of this recording, I'm very excited. I have my In Nolan We Trust t shirt that I only wear when on release day. Do you have to like, break it out of glass? <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, I uh, super excited read the book it's based on have not watched any trailers going in fresh have not read anything visited Los Alamos I could not be more ready for this three hour extravaganza Uh, and then Barbie I was seeing at some point this weekend I still need to figure out exactly when Um, but by next episode we'll be able to talk about both is that it? Uh, I also got a reminder that the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie it's coming oh, out, yeah. so I bought a ticket to that yeah. just to have it. Um, actually, looks kind of funny, and it's and it's I don't know if it's literally hand drawn, but made to look like it's hand drawn. It looks like an interesting take on the characters. I'll check it out. Yeah, it's got the, like the Into the Spider Verse kind of feel to it. Yeah, uh, Seth yeah. Rogen passion project. Um, yeah. I believe so. Yeah, I, it looks it looks good. I probably won't see it in the theaters, but definitely when it comes out on streaming. Uh, Bill, what I have queued up, I was going to do it tonight, but we ended up recording. I might do it tomorrow night or Friday. Um, the Flash is finally on um, Apple for rent, so I might yes, dabble yes. into The I'm Flash, gonna... and we can talk about it on the next Yeah, pod. I'd be curious your take, for sure. One thing I'm watching also, it uh, just occurred to me, speaking of Wes Anderson, throwback to the beginning of the episode, is I re-watched, because I think it was also available on Max, or one of those, uh, oh my god, what's it called? French Dispatch, the second to most recent Wes Anderson? Yeah. Mm. But yep. segment, it's a bunch of sort of short films. I'm doing it like film by film. Mm. Nice, smart. I thought so too. I, I had already seen it 
before, and I also thought that one was a little bit too complicated, but uh, not complicated, but just too much going on. But I did enjoy the stories, and I continue to. And I would encourage you to maybe revisit the Chalamet one. Big Chalamet episode. That's the one that I because that was the weakest, the weakest one of the four. I think. Yeah, I've I've continued to say that if you remove that vignette, I think that movie might be one of his best in terms of it would tighten the duration down and it would I think get better. But maybe maybe uh, maybe on revisit I'll change my mind on that. I don't. I know. mean, it's not like awesome. You're not going to change your opinion from like this sucks to like this rules. But it's it w- watching it as a standalone, like treating it like a little short film. Does it some favors, I think. Like I said, bleak. It's bleak out there, folks. But I hope you derive some enjoyment from listening to this episode of the Should I Go See It podcast. Uh, please make sure to follow on Instagram at Should I Go See It. Do you know a Snickers bar only has 250 calories?